And now, coming to you live from the slightly more serious anteroom of the Coot Street Motel 6, where you can gaze down on the partying crowds in the Gershwin Room while sipping a Campari and soda or two, we're joined by multiple SFRA Award w- w- recipient Lisa Yacek and John W. Campbell Award winner and longtime friend of the podcast, Kathleen Ann Goonan, to discuss Lisa's wonderful new book, Sisters Tomorrow, the first women of science fiction on the Coot Street Podcast! And for those of you who are regular listeners, there's no way I'm drinking Campari and soda right now, Jonathan. Um, I, I, I do want to I, I do want to uh, welcome Lisa, and we should we should mention Patrick Sharp as the co-editor of the Sisters of Tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the first women of science fiction, which I think is a fascinating book in some ways, in terms of the history it covers, is the most fascinating book I've seen. Since Justine Larvalesier's *The Battle of the Sexes* in science fiction, which covered some of the same research, but uh, I guess what she was not able to find out what 15 years ago or so in that book uh, is stuff that you've uncovered. You've uncovered information about early women writers and editors and artists and journalists that must have been really difficult to uncover because these people don't have Wikipedia entries. Yeah, it, it is. I think that if you don't have access to uh, either a full run of old science fiction, fiction magazines or better yet, a university library archive that has them all, it would be almost impossible to have known that all of that different kind of writing and art was actually in the, it was in the magazines and that women were contributing to every part of it, just like their male mm-hmm. counterparts. Yeah. Except most of the names, I think – in the anthology, which is from Wesleyan University Press as part of its early classics of science fiction series, I think, most of those people are not going to be familiar to most readers because they seem not to have been anthologized. I mean, there's a really long story by Leslie F. Stone, who was clearly one of the major figures. And I wanted to test both of your senses, all three of your senses, because, Jonathan, you're an anthologist as well, that Something that Ursula Le Guin said in her latest – in some essay in her latest collection of essays, she suspected that the history of science fiction was largely the history of male writers because male writers got reprinted more often than female writers did. And that's – she didn't have any evidence to back that up, but it sounds right. I remember a couple of years ago, and I don't know, Kathy, you might have been there. Maybe not. It was a reader con, and Catherine McLean showed up, and nobody under the age of 50 had ever heard of her. So – is that partly why the history of science fiction has become skewed over the last 70 years, that that the male authors simply got reprinted and anthologized more than the female writers did? Yeah, that was absolutely what we found. And in fact, we actually got an anecdote from Leslie Stone uh, from some research we had done in an old interview she had done about literally getting written out of the first generation of anthologies. So you had right, a lot of women who came into science fiction in the late 1920s and early 30s. Uh, for a number of reasons, but of course, in part because that was that moment of first wave feminism and women were making significant political and education and professional strides. And of course, like many periods of uh, feminist activity, it was followed by a period of feminist backlash. And as you had a number of younger uh, new male editors come in who were putting together the first generation of anthologies, uh, we know from at least Stone's anecdotes that uh, that she got written out of some of the anthologies. So, for instance, she had been invited to be in one of the first anthologies and there was a party for it and she couldn't go. So her husband had gone and the editors of the anthology came up to him and said, Oh, you must be Leslie stone. We like your work so much. And he said, no, 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 that's, that's my wife. And they said, Oh, Oh, Oh. And the next thing she knew about a week later, she had a letter uh, politely informing her that they had decided not to include her story in the anthology after all. And it's, it's hard not to sort of draw the line between the dots there. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, Lisa, how much of the research in compiling a book like this is connecting dots that there's no overt evidence for? Um, I I, I found there was a lot more evidence for what we wanted to look at than, than I had thought. And again, I think it's because there's this sort of newly opened access to the science fiction archives. So... For instance, we went into the book with the theory that maybe the women who had been popular at that time didn't entirely align with a lot of the women who had been recovered by, for instance, specifically uh, feminist critics. 
and that maybe there were feminists out there in the beginning, but that there was a lot of other stuff going on. And sure enough, once we could go through and look through the letters pages and look through at the editor's comments on things, we did find that women were writing in a variety of different tones and, and story forms, including ones that were pretty feminist, including ones that had nothing to do with feminism whatsoever. So what I was surprised was, yeah, when you go into the archive, there, there, the lines were pretty easily drawn between the dots in many cases. And we just haven't had access to that. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. <laughs> oh, okay. I was, I was going to say, because one of the things that strikes me about, um, about the anthology is that we have to make a distinction, I guess, between science fiction by women and feminist science fiction. Because yeah. some of these are classic pulp stories, uh, and some of the stories that um, – uh, well, Lee Brackett, who's actually a little bit later than the period you're covering here, uh, clearly said that she didn't think she was writing feminist science fiction, even though you can look at it a certain way now, and it looks that way now. Right. Well, but right, I can see where Lee Brackett would say that, right? She's not grappling with some of the same issues that you see in, in, for instance, the feminist utopias of the late 1800s and early 1900s. So um, yeah. she's not thinking directly about, well, how can science and technology like eliminate housework and liberate women to do other things? So, uh, but at the same time, she's doing things that women are often associated with, like writing about relationships and writing about intense states of psychological being, even as she's putting people uh, in these amazing adventures in, in mm -hmm. fantastic landscapes. So, right, I agree with you. It seems like that in retrospect, but I could certainly see where she didn't see herself as plugging into that. And my sense is that a lot of these women, while they may have been feminists in their own lives, and, and a few of them did indeed bring feminist themes into their science fiction, they really saw themselves as pioneers in, in building a new genre, and that was really their first priority over any kind of political statement. And so no, I, I, I think I, go ahead, Gary. Go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, and so I assume then the real feminist action for those writers is just taking part and being instrumental on the foundation of the new genre at the time. Yeah, I think absolutely um, that they were they were part of this genre. We know from a lot of uh, anecdotes and interviews that we found that women were very pleasantly surprised when they joined the genre that that they weren't challenged uh, because of their sex or because of their scientific or technological know-how, and that at least some editors, like Hugo Gernsback and, and his crew of associate editors, were really excited to bring women in. Because if you could say, well, look at this, even housewife, housewives are writing this genre, then it must be really important and new and exciting, right? Wasn't and for everyone, for the masses. Was it your feeling reading this material, researching this material, that there were waves of response to women coming into science fiction uh, that followed from these periods? Like, are you talking about you know, the, the period that's covered by the book, the, rece the reception that women received from Gernsback and others? Was it, were there then corollary rollback periods, if you like, where it seemed as though yeah. the genre was pushing back? Right. Yeah, I absolutely think so. What you see is a real burst of women in the very early years of the genre. So in the late 20s and early 30s. And then there is a sort of die out period in the mid to late 30s for a variety of reasons, I, I suspect. Um, one of which is, of course, the fact that you had these new younger male editors coming in who weren't really excited about necessarily working with some of these women whom they associated with a, an earlier mode of science fiction and one that was beginning, I think, to seem a little bit aesthetically primitive, if not politically or socially primitive. Um, and then also people move in and out of the genre all the time, right, for a variety of reasons. Some women found careers in other modes of writing or other kinds of professions altogether. Some found that the increasing demands, for instance, of marriage and children meant that it was uh, time to leave the genre for a little while. So women did indeed leave for a number of reasons. And then, again, this isn't part of this book, but it's work I've done elsewhere. You do indeed have a whole new generation of women who are going to come into the genre after World War II with really a pretty different attitude towards science fiction in some ways. So that's interesting as well. Do you think that there's a separate history of science fiction to be told or a, a broader general history of science fiction to be told that looks at 
the waves of women coming into the field because, if you like, there is a traditional narrative that talks about, you know, the whole Gernsback continuum kind of argument of Gernsback to Campbell to New Wave to Cyberpunk or whatever. Is there within that a, 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 an entire separate narrative that plays a counterpoint to, to that story, do you feel? That's a really interesting question. There's definitely a broader narrative to be told, and my guess is that when that is told, that it would absolutely provide, if not exactly entirely a counterpoint, certainly different dimensions to the stories that we know right now. And that might be then a history of the field as it becomes more and less receptive to the mm-hmm. kinds of different viewpoints that implicitly you would think science fiction would always embrace. It's interesting that when I was looking at the Sisters of Tomorrow anthology and then some months after that, looking at the Vandermeer's anthology, The Big Book of Science Fiction, mm-hmm. and what they're doing is clearly and overtly challenging the consensus narrative, the consensus narrative that science fiction began with Gernsback and went through Campbell and then uh, was essentially uh, essentially a boys' club. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to show that science fiction is something that emerged more or less independently in many cultures throughout the world over the last 200 years, and it's not just that single narrative. And to some extent, you're looking. So they're looking at science fiction through a different lens than the traditional. And I think that uh, you see the same thing with Sisters of Tomorrow. Uh, It's it's not a different history. It's a different lens through which to look at that history. Yeah, I think that that's exactly the right way way to put it. That it, it exactly it gives you a different view on that history. And that's interesting to me about the Vandermeers looking at that, because it is sort of the sense that I got that emerged over the course of researching this book, that there are different locales and different sources for that science fiction. So, for instance, Gernsback and early editors would say, take the best of the old genres and remix them and make them new and, and relevant to the modern moment. But women would often bring in different genres than men. And so all of a sudden, when you start mapping it that way, you start to see different literary genealogies and you start putting science fiction in different webs of uh, literary production. And and a different set of contexts as well, because as you mentioned, a lot of these women writers – as a lot of the men writers did in the 30s, would write for multiple genres in the pulp magazines. They'd write westerns. They'd write spicy detective stories. And science fiction was one among many things that they did to make a living. Right, exactly, yes. And what's interesting is, for instance, how many women were writing either domestic fiction or romance fiction and then bringing strains of that with them into science fiction. And in a moment, right, when fans were arguing about whether or not you should even have kissing in science fiction, and all of a sudden women were way past that, and we weren't just kissing, we were mating with aliens and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. Uh, and it, but you sort of don't see it because it's slid in through these other generic conventions that that do mesh really well with the early science fiction conventions. Well, the one story that stands out uh, in some ways like a sore thumb as being, I'm sure, the most famous and the most frequently reprinted story in your anthology is Sale Moore's Shamblo, yeah. which which as recently as last year was uh, paid homage to by Lobby Tidar's novel, um, which uh, the um, Central Station, which is a character named Shamblo. It's clearly, and that's a really radically sexual story for the 1930s, written to be written by anybody. It really is. And what we found was particularly amazing was when we went back and looked at the original text within the magazine itself, the imagery is also really shockingly ambiguous in its sexuality. And the way the Shamblo is drawn is really non-traditionally gendered and it's interesting yeah to see that it's not just the energy in the story but that the illustrator was able to pick up on that energy and carry it into the illustrations as well and that's something you just don't know again if you don't have access to the archives what was the reader response to that story the reader response was people really liked it they did and what's interesting is whereas we found a lot of debate about stories that were overtly feminist, that were give the woman a wrench and she's the one who will get you to the moon. There's a lot more debate over those stories, the merits of them. But with Chamblow, I think because it's so subtly written and pulled together in a way that's pretty sophisticated for the moment, people just got excited about the ideas without over worrying, well, is this part of some other 
female or feminist tradition that maybe does or doesn't fit here. So, it, 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 yeah, that, that, that reminds me of the reaction. Uh, again, the, the consensus history or kind of the, the folk history of science fiction talked mm-hmm. about that as a controversial story. And as you, as you mm-hmm. said, apparently it wasn't that controversial. People liked it. Philip Jose mm-hmm. Farmer's The Lovers, uh, most histories of science fiction talk about the uproar that went went over uh, the publication of that story in Startling yeah. Stories in 1952, I think. And yet, uh, I think, again, I think it was Rob Latham who went back to look at the actual issues, yeah. and people loved it. People yeah. were not outraged at the story at all. It got yeah. nothing but positive responses. Right. Right. Yeah, we found that that was true more often than not. Again, you had to do something fairly radical, like have a group of women from Venus totally beat up on the men from Earth before people would (laughs) even remotely get upset about these ideas. And in fact, what I found was that really from almost literally day one, the fans were, were thinking about science fiction and the science fiction community as the literature and the community of the future And so they would look around and they would say, this is the moment of the Harlem Renaissance. Where are the black authors? They would say Negro authors, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of discussion from the beginning. Women would self-identify very quickly as fans and editors would get really excited women were writing and people would talk about it. So I think from the beginning, you see a really interesting elasticity in this community and what it was willing to play with. Do you feel that when you look at the you know the period that the kind of barriers that were in place within the science fiction field that prevented women uh, being recognized more widely were more or less restrictive than the general barriers of the day for anything else, or, or you know, or was it more specific right. to science fiction? Right. It seems at least the way women self-reported their experience, and from what you can tell from again, editorial introductions and fan reactions that at least initially for the first 10 or 15 years, the genre was pretty open to to a lot of different people being in it and to women being in it. Um, we know that Leslie F. Stone and another, I uh, can't remember who it is exactly, but a couple other women authors with ambiguously gendered names reported that when their editors found out they were women, they were really excited rather than, oh, no, a woman is writing this. And and again, you would see them sort of sell the genre on this. So it, it was it was a moment where women got to be sort of equally economically exploited for their artistic labor as men. And they seemed to really appreciate that they were not treated very differently than their male counterparts for the most part. In other words, they were treated horribly. <laughs> yes, exactly. But everyone was equally treated horribly, so maybe that helped level the playing field a little bit. I wonder if one of the other factors, and this is something, again, that goes back to Lee Brackett. When I, we were putting together, as, as you know, we had one of her novels in this Library of America set, and we found an old I, interview with her. Uh, a couple of hours long that was in the archives at Youngstown State University, in which she talked at great length about never having experienced any kind of discrimination until she got to Hollywood. Uh, when, yes. she, when she joined the, the, the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society and people like Ray Bradbury were members, they, they worshipped her. They were so pleased that a girl was paying attention to what they right. were doing. Right. Uh, and right. then, when, and then, of course, she'd written a couple of mystery novels. And when Howard Hawks asked her into his office – and discovered she was a woman, that's when she started seeing what sexual discrimination was like. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm not surprised to hear this story because, again, I don't hear a single story of sexual discrimination until the mid to late 30s. Again, when you have a new generation come in, and it's almost as much of a generational issue as a gender issue, although it definitely plays out more in hostility towards women. But but early on, yeah, it it seems that the, the playing field was quite level. Well, Kathy, I'm curious, as somebody starting out as a science fiction reader as a kid, and I know your dad was interested in it too, were you aware of this whole history of science fiction when you started writing, when you decided to become a writer yourself? Well, not no, certainly not so much, uh, not so much at all, because I didn't come uh, to science fiction through fandom. Instead, I came to science fiction through an interest in the weird and the fantastic. <laughs> so, uh-huh. uh, uh, and I, you know, I actually had a roommate in, um, uh, in college, uh, he and his, his, uh, wife, 
uh, went to Worldcons at that time, and uh, I saw them uh, in Kansas City this year. So that you know, they're still fans, and they're still good friends of mine. But um, even even though I lived with them, and I read the science fiction that was coming out in the early '70s, that was written by women, um, <clears throat> I, I I did not know anything about the history of science fiction uh, in regards to the writer's side or uh, fandom or anything. The first time mm-hmm. I, I was exposed to anything concerning fandom was when I, um, uh, the year after I went to Clarion, which was 88, I joined the Vicious Circle. I was invited to join the Vicious Circle in Washington, D.C., which was uh, Ted White, Steve Brown, uh, Dave Bischoff, and uh, Liz Hand was just leaving. And, it, you know, over the years, it had been a rotating um, uh, uh, group of people you know, going in and out of the vicious circle, but it did have a reputation. And Ted shared, you know, he had edited many fanzines, you know, over the years. And, and that's when I first saw mimeographed fanzines. And, and I was, you know, fascinated by all of this. So, so, so because one of the things we're going to talk about before we're done here is your, your, your afterward to sisters of tomorrow, which more or less, deals with, I guess, women reclaiming science fiction. I think that's not quite your title, but is that, I'm looking at your title right now, and, um, and I can't find it. Oh, well. It's, uh, it's women, women take back science fiction. Women take is, back science yep. fiction. We're active. We're active than reclaimed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, take back. Uh, like, as, go ahead. Well, well, this, this was my experience in the, in the, um, uh, in the 70s, uh, I, you know, I read uh, The Dispossessed. I read uh, Joan Benji, Snow Queen. And, and, but, but I did notice that there were not many women writing science fiction, but there seemed to be more than when I was younger. And so I, you know, I became more interested in science fiction at that time. But, uh, and, I, and I started reading um, the magazines, Asimov's and, and FNSF and... And when Omni started, I, I always I always read the science fiction in there. But in um, uh, I didn't see myself as uh, as being it. Was, science fiction was something I wanted to write, but at the same time, I did not have many models. And uh, in the uh, early eighties, I read Infinity's Web by Sheila Finch. Uh-huh. Uh, I read. Um, I don't know. There were a few other seminal books, science fiction books, written by women at that time. And I, I really had an aha moment when I read, uh, and Lisa Tuttle, uh, when I read Infinity's Web. I, I said, if women can write, if, if this is science fiction and women are writing this, then I can write science fiction too. And that was a good moment for me. Um, because you, you do need models in the environment. Uh, uh, it's not that I would not have written science fiction had that not happened, but it gave me some more confidence, you know, as, as I started. But you must have just stumbled across uh, that novel somehow on your own, because, again, that's not a novel that got a lot of uh, discussion at the time, particularly. Um, oh, of course. I, I, I went to the bookstore probably several times a week and I you know I always looked I looked all over and I worked in a bookstore for many years but uh, whenever I went to a bookstore I would pretty much scan the entire store for, for all the different subjects in which I was interested so yeah I I, uh, I picked it up in the well as long as we're on the subject Lisa how did you get interested in science fiction you know, my very first memory in the world is watching Star Trek with my parents and eating radishes out of our organic gardens. So I think I was destined to either be an organic farmer or a science fiction person from the beginning. And it is true. Both of my parents are huge science fiction fans, and that goes back a couple generations on both sides of our family. So I don't really remember a time not reading science fiction. I think I read Sam Delaney and Joanna Russ when I was about 11 or 12, and I had no idea what I was reading, but it was super cool. And I just sort of kept coming back to it and coming back to it. 
And then I left science fiction for a while in college to go and experiment with other things, as you're supposed to do in college. And eventually I came back to it in graduate school while I was working on my dissertation. And now I'm fortunate I get to work on science fiction full time at Georgia Tech. So that's great. When you, were, when you were a kid, were you looking out for science fiction by women? I don't remember looking out for specifically, but we had a lot of it around the house. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't that I would have to look hard for it. We oh. had, like I said, I was reading Delaney and Merrill and Marge Piercy, and I remember we had, um, I think it was Virginia Kids Millennial Women Anthology, and then so we had some anthologies uh, either by women or that had featured a lot of women. And it just did. I remember we had a Judith Merrill anthology I really liked as a little kid. And it it wasn't really until later when I, I started thinking about feminism and feminism and literary history that it occurred to me that that there might have at any point been some kind of gender disparity or that there were still issues we were working on in science fiction. So I came to the problem kind of late in the ballgame, really. Yeah, we, we had uh, Pamela Sargent on a couple of years ago and we were talking obviously about the Women of Wonder anthologies, in which case she was yes. clearly aware that there was a, yes. a a balance to be redressed. Uh, and I guess that generation of people in the 70s yes. were, were very well aware of the fact that this, this disappearance of women from the field had been going on for some decades, and they wanted to sort of correct that. Um, and, and so we did get a lot of series. You got the Virginia Kidd anthology. You got the Pamela Sargent anthology. Yes. Um, there was... Even a Sam Moskowitz anthology <laughs> called yes. Womanthology. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yes, I remember. There, there's also one from Forey Ackerman and a couple other people called The New oh, Eve. Sorry, so sorry, yeah. Ackerman is what I'm thinking of. The Not New Eve. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they were there, but I really, as someone who's a little bit younger than the rest of you, I, I benefited from all that hard work that everyone did and – I stand on the shoulder of giants. I'm glad that I can continue in that tradition of, of recovering um, the history of women in science fiction and, and not let it be a secret history anymore. Well, is that the real you know, task of a book like this one, of books like uh, Daughters of Earth, of books like um, Battle of the Sexes and so on, to actually redress the fact that whilst women are writing science fiction and fantasy and horror and contributing to the genre, the story we tell about it, the work we discuss is disproportionately male and that that disappears these contributions. Yes. And I think it's critical that we remember these histories because anytime you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right. And I think that that's been made evident in the Gamergate and Puppygate scandals and especially in the Puppygate scandals, right, where you have this group of angry, disenfranchised, mostly white guys who keeps saying, well, women are ruining all the fun of the genre by mixing in those other genres and making us think about the impact of science and society, and it's just not fun anymore. And yet that's what editors were asking both men and women to do from the very beginning of the genre. So it's it strikes me that I don't know that knowing that history would have changed anything, but it would certainly open up the dialogue, I would imagine, in, in some different ways. And how important do you think books like the Vandermeers uh, anthology, Sisters of the Revolution, the recent Christine Catherine Rush anthology from Bain, and so on, how important they are in helping to uh, flesh out that story for readers and make that work available again so that uh, the, you know, these stories that they're told about how the field has evolved become more real to them? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think you've just described why it's important, because the more we hear those stories, right, the more real they become. And also, you know, there's a secondary thing here. Of course, I want the book to, to educate or enlighten people, but also you should be entertained. There's some funny mm. stories in there, you know, both in terms of this, or mind-blowing stories or awesome stories, and not just the stories the women wrote, but often stories about the women themselves. This is really a group of real characters, and it brings the genre alive, I think, for people when you can make those kinds of human connections as well as see the different ranges of stories. I'm curious, Kathy, when you look at your introduction and when you compare it with the rest of the, the book, do you feel that over time things are actually improving for women in science fiction? Oh, certainly um, right now, but um, it, 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 it goes in, in fits and starts, I think. And 
but I, I read with great interest all of the uh, the editorials and uh, science uh, uh, columns that uh, that are included in the anthology because they reminded me so much of what uh, Sheila Williams does in Asimov's. Um, but overall, the the fact that uh, as as Lisa said, there there was this real atmosphere of inclusion. Um, at the beginning of, uh, of the genre in terms of including women. And, and actually, I, I think, you know, women not even asking, you know, to be included, but just, you know, saying this is a cool thing to do and, and we're going to do it each, each in our own way. And so, so right now I, th- I think that, that despite some of the things that I wrote in the conclusion about women perhaps looking at the genre uh, and just not wanting to have anything to do with it because of things like the, uh, the physical markers of it, like the cover art and things like that, uh, that I, that I asked editors and, and did a lot of research about um, in terms of how editors uh, see the, their marketing efforts and uh, the, the, the face of, science fiction in general, to the public. Um, I think that from the inside, for the most part, the women that I know as, uh, as science fiction writers are, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty much pretty sharp-edged people, really, that, that are, you know, pretty determined to, to be writers and to write science fiction because you have to have that personality as a writer, really. Uh, so it's it's an interesting time to be uh, a science fiction writer and well, a woman. I mean, one of the statistics that you quoted uh, in your essay, which I'm looking at now, is from 1968 to 2011, which is what 43 years. There were a total of 46 awards to women in all the professional science fiction and fantasy categories. Of I guess all the major awards, uh, Hugo's and Nebulas and whatever, um, which sounds appalling. It's something a little over twenty percent, and yet last year was it last year we had for the first time every Nebula winner was a woman. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the year before last. Yes, okay, and that was just just wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, it, it may have been a kind of a reaction to the to the puppies, uh, but nevertheless. Of course, all of all of them are fine stories and uh, and worthy of awards. So, so that's not really the reason, but but I think it it might have entered people's minds as they were voting, just as it it has affected the Hugo voting for the last few years. Uh, which is, you know, it's inevitable when you have awards, whether they're judged or or whether they're um, they're coming from from the, the writers themselves or the, the fans and the Hugos, it's inevitable that people do not take works of art, you know, stories, novels, for their own value, but for what they might represent in society and in terms of uh, different political goals that people might have. And that's just the way it is. Um, I, I, I suspect that's true of all awards voting is that uh, obviously not everyone, in fact, not even a majority, not even a significant plurality of people voting on things like the Hugos and Nebulas have actually read every qualifying story. So there there are multiple agendas that I'm sure go into the voting, and uh, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Um, no, I, I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. It, it's the real world. One of the things you mentioned in your essay also, which reflects back on – Another section of, of the book, because the book is not just a collection of stories by women. There, there's stories, nonfiction articles, poems. Uh, there's a section on editors, a section on artists. And you mentioned Sheila Williams, who has frankly been doing a heroic job uh, at Asimov's for quite a while now, uh, sometimes complaining about not getting as many submissions from women as she would like. But it raises the issue, which I think is also important earlier, that uh, that you had – uh, editors like one one editor that always fascinated me and I never knew anything about her until I looked at Sisters of Tomorrow was Mary Nadinger, who had edited famous Fantastic Mysteries. Um, and I gather it was just a job for her among other 
things that she was assigned to do. But my my sort of informal theory was that Famous Fantastic Mysteries in the late 30s and throughout part of the 40s was a reprint magazine. And so to some extent, she was responsible for bringing earlier pulp stories to the attention of a later generation of writers who came of age in the 40s and thereby helped create this whole tradition, which we now view as a kind of consensus history of American science fiction. Yes, um, and, and I think that your, your, uh, your reference to how the, how the canon is formed is, is, an, is an important point, because that is what gets taught, that is, uh, that is what forms the ideas that people have about the history of science fiction, and as a, a writer and as and also as a professor, you know, when I when I started teaching, I thought, well, there are stories that I want to teach, uh, but they're not in an anthology, or perhaps they would have to buy an anthology just for that one story. Mm-hmm. So if you know, if I knew the writers, I would just personally ask them, and they would give me permission to use the story in the classroom. And I envision a um, uh, something like iTunes where people's stories, writers' stories could be available, that every writer could put their story up in this particular format, and a lot of them do, but just to make it more formal and available to professors so that they they could, you know, in essence, create their own anthology and thus make the canon a lot more fluid and elastic. And because the amount of stories coming out is is uh, every year is finite, uh, and but but certain stories do come to the attention of people more often. It could be mm-hmm. that you know we could be forming a, a different idea of uh, science fiction by using the technologies that are available today. But again, there are issues of rights. I've discussed this with other writers, and some writers were just appalled at the idea. They said, oh my goodness, um, when you get into the contracts and rights and everything, that would just be impossible. But I, I honestly, I don't, I don't think that that is anything. Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating, uh, to, just to stay on the issue of the editors for a minute, is that editors mm-hmm. are gatekeepers to some extent in the field. And yes. uh, I think one of the things that... Um, uh, again, the anthology is, is, is mostly the 30s and early 40s, but um, and, and, you, and, and there are some clearly some editors, weird tales and so forth. You move back into the 60s, though, I wonder if the sensibility of certain women editors, and the one I'm thinking about more than – the two I'm thinking about are Judith Merrill and Seal Goldsmith mm-hmm. is amazing, um, mm-hmm. who just introduced the new wave to, to American readers. who introduced Tom Dish and Samuel R. Delaney and um, – David R. Bunch, any numbers of not just necessarily women writers, but um, I wonder if the influence of women editors shift has actually had uh, caused a shift in the direction of um, the field over the years. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the 60s because I think without without Merrill and Goldsmith, I'm not sure how visible the new wave would have been in the United States. Oh, that's that's pretty interesting. Um my dad had a great collection of Judith Merrill um, edited anthologies. Mm-hmm. She was she was one of his favorites, and I think that it could be that being perhaps coming coming at the field from a different point of view than they you know women editors could then reformulate and and put forth you know what they thought was more important from their own. Um, you know, according to their own sensibilities and uh, perhaps being not as conservative in ways ought to be in science fiction stories, the ways in which it it was treated, the style in which it was written, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm really, the new wave science fiction is, is when I became really much more interested in reading science. Yeah, and we, I, I, I probably overstated my case because there certainly were male editors as important. Terry Carr, for example, in the same period. Yeah, it's yes, indeed. Me, yeah. 
but it did strike me that, uh, that that Meryl, from the beginning of her year's best anthologies, was trying to blur genre boundaries, was trying to bring stories in. Um, well, it, it, I, my understanding was that her SF, the year's greatest, was deliberately not, by the second or third volume, not meant to, to, to stand for science fiction or science fantasy or speculative fiction. She wanted SF itself to be an ambivalent uh, abbreviation. So she could include Shirley Jackson in her anthologies, for example, or Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip. Well, and and if you know, if you think of science fiction as I do, as a it's a, a fantastic literature, and mm. even a romantic literature, then um, then that really, uh, you know, I've I've listened for for decades now our, our arguments about you know is this science fiction is this not science fiction, and. As far as I'm concerned, I think that it makes for much more exciting reading if if uh, it's more inclusive. I'm curious. Um, we're talking about various things to do with the field. There's a process of canon formation, if you like, of how works become accepted into the canon of great science fiction and fantasy, whether it be from reviews to articles to commentary, whether it be awards, whether it be multiple reprintings. Do you think, and maybe you could start on this, Lisa, from your perspective, looking at Sister Tomorrow, do you think that process has harmed or held back women and their reputations more than it has done so for their male colleagues? You know, I don't know if it has more than their male colleagues, but I do certainly think that the fact that especially these early women didn't necessarily get the same kinds of awards and reprinting and translations absolutely made a difference. And I even feel it a little bit now while I'm working on a project for Library of America where we're going to do a volume on early classics of women's science fiction. And it's particularly interesting working with a group of people who are interested in science fiction but also interested in selling it to a mainstream audience. They want to see that kind of recognition behind the stories and when it's not there, sometimes if the story isn't immediately and intuitively literary necessarily in the way a non-science fiction reader might expect, they have a little bit harder time um, understanding the values. So I, I think we do feel that these kinds of uh, reward systems provide us with a guide through the field, absolutely, and that, that, when that when that map is not there, it's hard to read the territory, absolutely. Does that make doing this book particularly more challenging, you know, The Sisters of Tomorrow? Because largely, I guess, it exists before the existence of all of those recognition systems. I mean, the Hugo's only come in the mm -hmm. early 50s, right. the Nebulas in the 60s, and so on. There's nothing to signpost other than, say, something like, you know, Silverberg's uh, SF Hall of Fame kind of anthology, that kind of thing, to right. uh, signpost what is important and worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. We found that the way the best way to signpost was to look at what the um, text was that surrounded the stories or the illustrations or the articles to see what editors were saying about it and how fans responded, that that was really the community standard that was in place. And, and, and so, again, well, little, yeah, yeah. continue, please. Oh, I was just no, going to say, so, oh, yeah, no surprise that. Once we no longer had access to the magazines, but only what was being reprinted and not the material around it, again, it becomes more difficult to judge what the context was for the stories. But by the time you get to the late 1940s, uh, the most prolific anthologist uh, of those early anthologies was Groff Conklin. There were like four or five giant Groff Conklin anthologies in the late yeah. 40s and early 50s. And one, uh, Adventures in Time and Space by Helium McComas. I gather Groff Conklin was rather an unenlightened male editor, wasn't he? <laughs> I think he was the one who wrote Leslie Stone out of the anthology, in fact. So I'm going to have to go with a yes on that if that story <laughs> is, you know, true. <laughs> I mean, I heard stories, and I've never, I, 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 we should talk to Bob Silverberg, who know, knew everybody. Uh, the sense I have is that he was one of the people who simply believed that women could not write science fiction. Right. Uh, as, as kind of a, a first principle. And um, and because he edited such a, a huge number of huge anthologies, at the very beginning of the era when science fiction could make its way into public libraries, for example, uh, his writing women out of the field, uh, or largely writing women out of the field, I don't know, he may have had some Lee Brackett stories here and there probably 
influence later anthologies because one of the things I've often suspected and never been able to quite prove is that anthologists, historical anthologists, tend to look at books, that, stories that have already been anthologized, and it's kind of a, yes. a, a domino mm-hmm. effect. Once a story has yeah. been sort of put between hardcovers, it stays between hardcovers and subsequent anthologies. And going back to the original yes. magazines, as you did, is something that fewer and fewer editors seem to do. Which is surprising because there's more and more access to the older archives. So this seems to me like the perfect moment to take advantage of that. But it is true. Nothing breeds success like success. So no wonder we tend to see the same things reprinted. And it's also true. Someone like Justine Larbaliestia has said that a lot of the work that's in those pulps really isn't worth recovering. (laughs) <laughs> well, there, there, there's a wide variety of, of writing and, and skill levels and engagement with ideas. So, but isn't that true in, in almost any, this is right, Sturgeon's sure. Law, 90% sure. of everything is crap. Sure. So, um, but part of what we were interested was not just finding what was necessarily the best, but what resonated with people. That was really what interested us because... Uh-huh. The best is kind of subjective, and and that seemed to us that was part of what drove the book was that by people going in and looking for the best, they were cherry picking things that were sometimes out of context and maybe uh, provided right that sort of consensual history of science fiction, but not necessarily the full and dynamic one that maybe we many of us crave. I'm curious as well, how much of a barrier to a book like Sisters of Tomorrow is the view that uh, for a modern reader? If I've not heard of someone, it can't be any good because I would have heard of it because it would have been anthologized and would have been kept in the world rather than having disappeared. I mean, there are well, writers in this book that are not widely discussed at all, who have largely fallen through the cracks of history or, or whatever else. How much of a barrier is that prejudice? Uh, perhaps it's the company I keep, but I didn't find it was a, a, a barrier at all. People were excited and enthusiastic. And maybe I just run with feminists and feminist-friendly people, but it, people say, of course, and yes, and tell me another story. So I didn't find that kind of resistance at all. Just instead, the kind of curiosity and the kinds of questions we're discussing here, why did it unfold the way it did? Well, I, I think part of it is – and I think you're right. And my sense was uh, of, of the stories that you have in the anthology, I think maybe I'd read two or three of them before, and that was because I have a lot of anthologies. But there also is this uh, – there's a the sense of discovery, and there's the sense that um, – Maybe we can. Maybe we need to relook at this whole history. I mean, the the thing that I, that haunted me. I'm two anecdotes that are unrelated. One thing that sort of comes across in your book that absolutely haunted me in Justine Larbalestier's book, to the extent that I obsessively went on the web and, and tracked this person down, was she talked about the letter columns and the letters to the mostly to amazing stories or to wonder stories right. Right. from women readers. Yes. And there was one woman, and I can almost remember her name, who was a nurse in Hayes, Kansas, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. She was in she was in Dorothy Gale's version of Kansas, living out on this RFD2, reading amazing stories every month, and obviously having no one in her world to talk to about this. And she wrote letters to the uh, to the editor, and, uh, and and Justine just there's a short paragraph about that in her book, and I. It bothered me so much wondering about this woman sitting in the middle of Kansas being the only science fiction reader probably within 500 miles that I tracked down her obituary. It turns out she became a founder of the first nursing school in Kansas or something like that and, and died as a, at a respectable old age, probably had given up reading science fiction by 1940. Uh, but nevertheless, that uh, seemed to me this whole culture of science fiction, not just – the writers and the editors, but the readers that seemed utterly invisible uh, when I was first becoming aware of the genre. Well, if you're becoming aware of the genre through the anthologies, then you're absolutely are going to be unaware of that. I I wonder, though, how much that's still true today, because so much action right in the science fiction community takes place online. And in some ways, that's a speeding up of that same community, right, of letter writing fans. It's the same thing. So, so now I think we're aware of that. And again, I think no one is surprised when, when I say, well, but if you go back and look at what the fans were debating, and they say, well, of course, fans debate everything all the time. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, that was an, an interesting thing to find. One thing I found that was really interesting when I was writing the book was how much the kinds of community that were forged by these letters, columns, and fan pages could become a source of, of not just comfort, but inspiration for authors. And this was actually one of my favorite stories we recovered. We had found a, an amateur science fiction poet named Tigrina, and her poems huh. didn't strike us as all that special as, at first. They, they sort of actually seemed like bad teenage goth poetry, in fact, at first. But we, there was something compelling, and we kept digging around, digging around about her. And we found out eventually that Tigrina was the uh, pen name of a woman named Edith Ede, who was a very young out lesbian right after World War II. And she had been part of the science fiction community, and she wanted to connect with other lesbian women. And so she decided to start a lesbian fanzine based on the models she had learned working in the science fiction fan community. And what she ended up producing was a journal called Vice Versa that became the cornerstone of uh, lesbian and gay journalism in America. And she eventually launched a huge career as, as a lesbian journalist. And she's been inducted into the uh, Gay and Lesbian Journalist Hall of Fame. And she's been featured in a number of films. And we thought that was so cool how science fiction, once you did have that community, could inspire new kinds of community. Very much. It's, it's fascinating. It raises another issue, which is probably impossible to research, which if you were to look at, at the gay history of science fiction. And if you go back to the 40s and 50s, with few exceptions like the one you mentioned, you simply couldn't identify uh, who to include. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know how many people were, were out. I think right around World War II, it became easier to come out in some ways. Uh, lots of young men and women were spending time yeah. around each other, right? Uh, and, and the scene was changing a little bit. I can't imagine beforehand... We saw discussions of race and we just saw discussions of heterosexuality, but I did not see anything outside of that whatsoever. No, not much at all. I, the, the other question that there's kind of a gap in this sort of historical panoply that we're running through now because, because Kathy, you'd talked about beginning to come into the field and growing up, you know, reading Le Guin and, 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 and Russ and, and, and so forth. And mm-hmm. But there's this period from, let's say, about the late 40s to the mid-60s, where you had a lot of women writing science fiction, and again, most of them, some of them getting reputations, most of them not getting anthologized a lot, most of them having a one-book reputation, like Zena Henderson, for example, or a one-story sequence rep- reputation, and then um, and Judith Merrill's own fiction, which one story gets reprinted forever and nothing else ever gets reprinted. So... I'm wondering if that's another missing generation among women, the, uh, you know, the, the Catherine McLeans, the Margaret St. Clairs, um, uh, the people who are publishing regularly and, and, and having a nice, uh, nice career, but who basically seem to have, again, fallen off the radar. Um, actually, I, I think that Lisa could, uh, could answer that question much more thoroughly than I could because she has she has looked intensively at the I know at Lisa you're looking, well Lisa we should talk a little bit now, what are you looking for in the Library of America volume you said early right. science fiction yeah up until we, when uh, we're going to be going up to 1970 so we will be looking at that uh, golden age science fiction that you're talking about I actually did look at all of those women you're talking about and more in an earlier book I worked on but that was a, a critical book we didn't reprint the stories Although it is what led to Sisters of Tomorrow, because my editor said, well, the, pre- the press I was working at the time said, well, we couldn't do a reprint of those stories, but someone will, and you should really work on that sometime. And, and that's what I've been doing since then. So I do want to look at women like Meryl and um, everyone we were just talking about right yeah. here, et cetera. Um, and, and like I said, I've written about them critically. I've looked at the stories. I think it'd be great to bring some of them back. And what I would like to do with the Library of America volume uh, especially since the Golden Age science fiction in some ways uh, aligns more easily with Library of America's uh, more historic mission to produce yeah. the greatest of American literature. It tends to have a little more uh, psychological depth and characterization, so that works out well. But I'd like to ideally, in many cases, is maybe reprint one of those very famous stories because Sure, we're all familiar with Judith Merrill's That Only a Mother, and we may never want to see that story again, but it's going to be <laughs> real news to a lot of people out there. I mean, every time I teach it to my students who are science fiction fans, they have no idea, and their you know, minds are blown for five minutes. So, um, But it would also be great, I think, to bring back some of those other stories, because you're right, Zena Henderson wrote other kinds of stories, and 
a number of people wrote lots of other kinds of stories, and, and it would be good to bring those back into the conversation as well. Can I ask, what's the timeline on the Lone Beaver America volume? When are we likely to see it in the world? Uh, we are aiming for a 2018 release date. It will probably be late summer or early fall, but we really want to uh, have it out in time for the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's uh, bicentennial. So this will be sort of our, our gift back to Mary Shelley. Fantastic. Which is, as a parenthesis, Lisa, you and I are going to be on a panel about the Library of America with Peter and Brian, Peter Straub yes. and Atterbury. But it looks like fall 2018 will be the publication date for the American science fiction novels of the 1960s as well. Um, because the library, one, one good thing about the Library of America is that they seem to recognize that science fiction and fantasy books sell better than some of their other books and so they like to put them in the fall which is a high profile season and uh, what otherwise would be a spring release gets bumped to a fall release because right. it's higher profile yeah i've been really impressed with how enthusiastic they are about working with popular culture and how open they are to stepping outside their comfort zone uh for many of the editors there and and looking at new stuff that they love but hadn't thought they'd yeah. be working with so that's been really fun that's the same experience I've had. I'm, I'm curious as well. I'm curious just quickly, uh, Lisa, Kathy, how, how you feel about the need to keep making the case for the involvement of women in science fiction and fantasy and horror or whatever else. I'm struck by how repeatedly, no matter what the piece of history you're talking about, whether it's the 1920s and 30s covered by this book, or whether it's the rise of epic fantasy in the 1970s and writers like Catherine Kerr and Catherine Kurtz and whoever else, you have to keep reiterating the case over and over again, or, they, or women seem to be elided from the narrative. You know, that, that seems to be a real issue we have. Well, in, in when you're just looking at science fiction, uh, some of the things that I uh, found when I was writing the conclusion was that this 25 to 30% uh, um, statistic, that, that that's generally the number of women in, in a given popular, you know, if there's, a group of science fiction writer readers, then 30% of them may be women. But overall, you know, men are read much more science fiction than women. So, uh, so you have these fans who are not in the majority, and that number also corresponds pretty directly with the number of women that are in STEM professions. And so I would suggest that perhaps... Um, for one thing, you know, you, you do want to see yourself in uh, someone to identify with in fiction. And so it's nice if you're a woman to, to pick up a, a book and, and have female characters convincingly, convincingly drawn at the center of the narrative uh, who have agency in, in the story. Uh, but, but the other thing is that perhaps... Reading science fiction much more than you know watching a science fiction movie, uh, people perceive it as uh, you might need to have a more technical background or, or a broader understanding of science and technology to draw on uh, when you read science fiction. And it is like a, a, a different language, really, when you start reading science fiction. Um, so. So I, I, I think I think that uh, I think that's part of the of the situation right now, uh, and there's also the fact that a lot of women that I know personally, and as in in every female science fiction writer will tell you the same thing. If you tell a group of random women that you are a science fiction writer. A lot of them will say, "Oh, my children like to read science fiction," or you know, they don't—they just don't read, or they'll just say, "I don't read science fiction." Like it, it's uh, this force that they—they they need to stay away from and hope that never—they're they're never ever seen as, as having a science fiction yeah. book in their hands. So, or, or it takes um, two or three minutes into the conversation to real for them to realize you're actually talking about reading rather than watching TV or movies. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But you'd, you'd, so. you'd mentioned one of the cliches, one of the stereotypes uh, that emerges and has not entirely gone away, uh, the term soft science fiction, which seems to kind of be fading out of use, uh, that women were associated with soft science fiction, uh, Le Guin was using anthropology in her fiction and so forth, and hard SF was still a boy's game. And I think that's begun to change, too, not only with your own nanotech novels, but Jones Lanzuski and uh, uh, Linda Nagata, there, you know, there seems to be a much stronger presence of women in hard science fiction than there might have been 30 years ago. Well, also, the, the, the boundaries of hard, of hard science have changed as well during this time. For instance, yeah. um, you know, when I was in college, no one ever talked about consciousness, you know, as something one could study. You know, uh, that was for philosophers. And that is why I took so many philosophy classes, <laughs> uh, because there was nothing to study in terms of how what's going on in the brain, except to look at, you know, all these horrible rats experiments that, that still continue but where I went to school they were doing a lot of them so the only thing you can know is that you know when if the rat is pushed off the raft so many times it will give up some rats will give up soon some rats will give up later and that was not very satisfying uh, the investigation of what consciousness is is a is an actual scientific endeavor from a lot of different angles so just science and, and what we're able to explore with new tools and new imaging tools and, and the computerization of data and things like that has expanded dramatically. And, uh, and I think that has something to do with that. You know, it's not just engineering and, and rockets and, uh, uh, you know, it, so, so it's the- much more subtle now. That could be another podcast we could talk about sometime. You're, you're saying basically that the, that the line between hard and soft SF is blurring, if not disappearing entirely. Well, well, yeah, it's simply simply because uh, so in in popular science uh, or or books written by scientists for lay people, uh, there's just a, a wealth of those right now. So people mm-hmm. are much more aware of what is going on, and you know and on television and and uh, and in magazines, uh, it, the idea of science as something to be interested in uh, is is uh, is much more prevalent in society now, I, I think, than when I was growing up. I could be wrong about that. <laughs> you could be, you could, I was going to say after the election, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but. Uh, I'm curious. I should have asked you this earlier, Lisa, but perhaps as we begin to wind up, I've got sort of one last question. That is, what surprised you the most when uh, researching Sisters of Tomorrow? What surprised me the most was, seriously, what characters these women were. Their stories of their lives were, in many ways, as exciting as the stories they wrote, if not more so. Um, Whether or not they wrote about feminist themes, most of these women were very much what we would call the new woman. They were well-educated. They were well-traveled. They would have, they'd have it all. They'd have jobs. They'd have babies. They have marriages and not necessarily in the order you'd expect. And it was just so exciting to see the way that they themselves were living in a kind of future themselves and forging these futures that, that people like Kathy and I and, and both of you now inhabit as well. And that was, to me, the, I just didn't expect that, to see how rich their lives were. And that was very cool. Very much so. I have to say that it was a revelation for me looking at the book. Uh, I don't know what I would have expected, but I guess the image that you get when you look back at the few photos that survive and everything else is of a very almost repressed time and people coming in in a very restricted kind of a way. So it really is an entirely different kind of a world. Yeah, absolutely. And and you realize, again, that there was this moment where it was open and fluid and, and very joyous. And I, I hope that we catch that joy in the book as well as anything else. Very much. Oh, I think so. I, I think the and we should mention that there are some illustrations in the book. And yes, just because I like to make completely arbitrary links between our different podcasts, there's a some some paintings by Margaret Brundage, whose career uh, provided the model for our good friend Ellen Clages' yes. novella mm-hmm. Passing Strange. Um, mm-hmm. 
not, not her personality, because but, but but the idea of a group of strong women surviving in the 1940s is, is essentially what what Ellen's novella is about. And uh, and she said on the podcast that the that the paintings of Margaret Brundage, who I gather was not controversial until Weird Tales readers realized she was a woman. All these erotic covers were okay until yeah. they found out it was a woman artist doing it. Although the story that I found, and, and again, this might be apocryphal, but I heard this story, I came across it in the course of our research, that it, it, it both made the covers more uh, controversial, but it also gave Weird Tales a cushion because there was a branch of the government that examined whether or not magazines were pornographic and there was concern that the Weird Tales covers were pornographic because Margaret Brundage did very detailed covers. And she's certainly not afraid to show women using technology, just maybe not in the ways you would expect always. And <laughs> a little more sadistic than one might hope. But um, apparently some government officials had gone to Weird Tales, were making noises about shutting them down. And that was when, I guess that would have been Farnsworth Wright, revealed that Brundage was a woman because she had been signing everything M. Brundage up until M. that Brundage, point. Yeah. And then apparently the government officials said, oh, well, if a woman did those paintings, they can't be pornographic. They must just be erotic art. That's totally different. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, so I guess it was a trade-off then. So it may have made her artwork more controversial in some ways, but it made it less controversial as well. Wonderful. That's a great story. Well, on that note, we might wind up, with, you know, we're just past our hour. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Lisa and Kathy, for making time to talk to us. It's been enormously interesting and greatly appreciated. Well, thanks for having us on. It's been fun. And I'd just like to point out to all of our listeners that Sisters of Tomorrow, the first woman of science fiction, is out at the moment from Wesleyan University Press. It came out in 2016, is eligible for the 2017 Hugo Awards for Best Related Work. And we should mention it just won an award from the Popular Culture Association. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. We're we're delighted about that. And on that note, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. And Gary. Thank you. I will talk to you again next week. We'll talk next week. And again, this is the Coon Street Podcast.